I never thought of my neighborhood as noisy until my two-year-old son started pointing it out to me. In fact, a couple of his favorite words lately are noise and loud. Sometimes he is talking about motorcycles or an airplane overhead. But most often, the noise he's noticing is stuff like this. The rumble of backhoes gouging into the earth to make way for new building foundations. The beep beep of drywall-laden forklifts. The grinding of jackhammers. It is loud here, especially during the warmer months. It feels like this neighborhood is always under construction. Basically, there's money to be made here. Lots of it. And developers from near and far are flocking here, driving the price of land skyward. A couple blocks from me, an acre of vacant land was recently on the market for $2 million. To give that some perspective, that price is not far off the average sales price for an acre of land in much larger, more traditionally thriving cities like Los Angeles, where the average land value is $2.6 million per acre. And it's above the average cost per acre of land in Washington, D.C., which is $1.2 million, and Seattle, $1.3 million. Then there's a former Burger King on about three quarters of an acre at the top of my block. It just sold for $1.75 million to an out-of-town developer. That is pretty much a Los Angeles price. Here's what Councilwoman Jenny Spencer had to say about it at a recent community meeting. Based on that acquisition price, I can only guess that the developer will want to do something luxury or market rate. In other words, something that will sustain or accelerate the pace of rising prices. On a smaller scale, lots of individual houses in the neighborhood are also being flipped. Usually older houses, in some disrepair, that get renovated from top to bottom and then sold for top dollar. There's one block around the corner from me where seven of the 11 houses on one side of the street have changed hands in the last five years, all of them getting the classic flip treatment with new siding and windows and shiny kitchens and bathrooms. One house that really stands out, not just to me, but to a lot of people as a flip extraordinaire is not on that block, but right across the street from me. It's a spot that people walking by stop and stare at. The new siding sparkles in a hip shade of bright blue. The whole foundation was rebuilt in freshly poured concrete. And bursting out of the top is the tower. Actually, it's a small elevated roof deck. But it looks like a tower, kind of like a clock tower type of thing without the clock. I often see people walking by on the street, stop and stare upward, and then try to catch a peek inside too. Sure, at times I wished, you know, at times I was like, yeah, it'd be nice to have a little more privacy, but it didn't bother me. And I, I was never offended by someone looking just because I can appreciate why they were looking. Aaron Taylor is the guy who bought and renovated the house. I reached out to him because, well, I kind of felt suspicious of him, to be honest. He lived in the house briefly after fixing it up. My husband Ted and I met him a few times. Friendly enough guy who seemed to be in his 30s, white, clean-shaven, with a taste for athletic clothing. And then one day, Aaron moved out. And I thought, ah, so that was the plan all along. Build an extra fancy house, then sell it for an extra fancy price, pocket the profits, and move away. Typical flipper. So to see how accurate I was, or inaccurate, 
I pretty much laid out all my assumptions to Aaron during our call. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I'll answer that question in two, twofold. So one thousand percent, it was my intent to live there. Not that I would be opposed to doing a quote unquote flip, but with this home, it was my intent to live there. And as evidenced by the tremendous amount of, you know, I don't want to call them upgrades, but things I did with my family in mind or my wife in mind. The tower, of course, was one example. Another was a reading nook he built for his wife, a doctor who loves to read. And just these little touches I did on the home that, you know, from a flipper standpoint and just would not make money on. And I can tell you from all the stress and emotion and um, brain damage I went through, it was with the intent to live there. What happened was my wife was looking for a job here in Cleveland. Uh, she was finishing her uh, fellowship. Um, she's a surgeon. And, you know, she could not find a job here. But, you know, she found a job out in California. And there was this period of where, okay, I just spent all this time, this brain damage, built this beautiful home for us. And, and now, you know, I have to sell it. Um, so it was, a, it was a hard thing for me. It really was. Aaron and his wife sold the house in 2020. And the two of them moved to California, closer to his hometown of Portland, Oregon. But Aaron says he actually spends more time in Cleveland than on the West Coast because he's president of a private real estate company called Vision LLC that's still based here. At the time I spoke with him, Vision owned a few other houses in the neighborhood, though it sold off all but one, a rental. But I still had some questions for Aaron. So Aaron, when I first contacted you and asked if you'd be willing to talk to me, uh, you said something along the lines of you'd be happy to do that, but you didn't want to just have another conversation about gentrification. And I was wondering, did you feel like I was going to be disapproving of you or of developers in general? No, I just wanted to go into it eyes wide open. Being in development, real estate development, generally, we want to do cool projects. And unfortunately, just it takes money to do cool projects. So um, with that comes sometimes this conversation about, you know, gentrification and raising people's property taxes and things of that nature. But I believe with an earnest heart and what I'm doing and what the team I'm on is doing. How do you think of it on a personal level? Because this is something I think about living here too. Do you ever feel concerned that like, despite having good intentions, you could be having a negative effect on the neighborhood? I see both sides of the conversation. And I, I think if someone comes in and is doing something in a positive way and is mindful of the neighborhood and mindful of the neighbors, then you know I think it's important and there is a value into fixing up some of the whole older home stock that is, you know, needs updating. And and I hope that a diverse community can still stand after that's done because the value of diversity, it can't be understated. And do you feel like the neighborhood is at risk of losing that diversity? I don't feel it's at a level now that's like forcing people out. And, and coming from Portland, Oregon, I'm sensitive to housing affordability because in Portland, unfortunately, many have been pushed out of neighborhoods because 
the 95% of them, 97% of them, of those homes are no longer affordable. But that's not the case here in Cleveland. That's not the case even in the Detroit Shoreway neighborhood. For me, a couple of things came out of this conversation. One, however much Aaron is ultimately motivated by profit, my assumptions about him always intending to flip the house with the tower were wrong. Two, I was struck by his viewpoint that what's happening in cities like Portland, where people are getting forced out, that is not the case here in Cleveland. That's something I've heard from others, too, including at least one local leader. On this episode of Inside the Bricks 2, in Cleveland, one of the poorest big cities in the nation, are we kidding ourselves to worry about gentrification? Do we need more developers and flippers, not fewer? Jason Segedy is the Director of Planning and Urban Development for the city of Akron. If you're not from Northeast Ohio, that's a city about 30 miles south of Cleveland, close enough that its northern suburbs bleed into Cleveland's southern ones. I wanted to meet with Jason because he's gotten a lot of attention in the past few years for some tweets and online articles he's written about how gentrification is not something we have the luxury to worry about in cities like Akron and Cleveland. I would say that my own interest in the topic really started with trying to be proactive about how we talk about gentrification. So like, I don't usually voluntarily use that word, but not because I'm trying to, I'm not a believer in like policing people's speech, but I feel like the word has become very like muddy and it's hard to even know what it means. We met in the backyard of his tidy, black-shuttered house on Akron's north side, a couple blocks from a coffee shop and a Whole Foods. This neighborhood, unlike mine, has always been fairly well-heeled. So Jason tells me his interest in gentrification mostly comes from his job. And he says that's kind of the problem with a lot of the stuff he reads and sees about gentrification. Where it's coming from, to paraphrase one of his articles, is pundits and urban policy wonks, like him. But unlike him, they live in expensive cities on the coast and have no idea what it's like living in a low-income neighborhood, and certainly not a low-income neighborhood in the Rust Belt. Like, okay, there's this gentrification conversation in these cities, but what I started noticing is it seemed like it was quickly getting transferred, like almost like unadjusted to like Detroit or Cleveland. And I just wanted to try to give a different perspective than what I was reading in the national discourse that like, hey, like it sure we should think about displacement of people and try not to do that. But at the same time, like there's this other perspective of there are places in this country that have seen like almost nothing but decline. And in the case of, say, a Cleveland, you know, uh, where there's kind of like these first green shoots of new investment, like you you need to be careful to not derail that because it's like, Lord knows that a lot of our cities in the Rust Belt have suffered a lot from disinvestment. In fact, he coined a phrase, displacement by decline, to describe what he thinks is a much bigger problem than displacement by gentrification, at least in cities like Cleveland and Akron and Detroit. Displacement by decline is the continued fleeing of people of all races from city neighborhoods 
where they see no opportunity for themselves or their families. City neighborhoods where vacant lots and vacant buildings outnumber the occupied ones, where crime is an everyday occurrence and there's no access to fresh food or jobs. The people who leave mostly go to the suburbs, continuing the decades-long pattern that has made a lot of Rust Belt cities so segregated and high poverty. Displacement by decline, he says, is why cities like Cleveland are still losing population and wealth. And it's not healthy to have a neighborhood where everyone is chronically poor in another area eight miles away where everyone is super wealthy. I mean, that ad, that I think increases a lot of disparities between people and hurts opportunity, particularly for lower income people. But, you know, there's really two ways you can deal with that. One is to make it easier for lower income people to move to the higher income area. Uh, another way is to make it easier for having like more economic mixing in the lower income area. But like the only way really to have that happen is there's going to be some degree of neighborhood change. He says there's often an assumption that neighborhoods that do not gentrify stay the same. But he says the reality is closer to this. In cities like Cleveland, where median incomes are super low, middle and lower income neighborhoods that don't gentrify at least to some degree will decline. So you talked about like, we don't know what gentrification is anymore. It's become this term that almost has lost a clear meaning. But I did see you actually hazarded a definition. The process by which people of often modest means who were once castigated for abandoning the city are now castigated for returning to the city. Was that was that your? That was just something, yeah, I kind okay. of, in response to what I was reading and seeing in the kind of what we were talking about in yeah. the national media. And it was a little bit of a flippant characterization, but I think the grain of truth that I was trying to get at, it's very easy to get caught in this no-win situation where sprawl is bad, but so is any sort of change in an urban neighborhood. And I think it's it's clearly like, it, it it's untenable. The argument that Jason Segedy and Aaron Taylor made that people getting forced out of their neighborhoods is not yet happening to an extent we need to worry about in Cleveland, that has also been supported by some data. I mean, big picture, there needs to be a lot more demand in Cleveland. I don't think there is anything the city should do to try and frustrate development. Michael Norton is a policy analyst at the Reinvestment Fund. That's a nonprofit consulting firm that does studies on population and economic trends in cities. Norton worked on a 2020 study commissioned by the city of Cleveland where he calculated what he calls the displacement risk ratio for all 492 of the city's census block groups. Only nine of those block groups, yep, nine or 2%, had housing prices that were rising enough to pressure longer-term residents to move out. And even in those 2% of neighborhoods, prices were still at or below the national average. In fact, he says in the 30 or so cities where he's done similar studies, none, except maybe Detroit, has less displacement pressure than Cleveland. There's too little demand for housing here, he says. Not too much. And that's, you know, there are sort of three strategies that are available on, you know, increasing demand. It's sort of having new people move in with higher incomes, developing the skills of the people that are living there so that they can get higher paying jobs, and making long-term investments in the quality of education that kids are getting and finding ways to get them to stay. Interestingly, Norton's study did not identify my census block group as a place where there is significant displacement risk. 
but I live right next to a black group that does have significant risk. In your view, do we need to be concerned about individual neighborhoods or black groups where there is a higher displacement risk? Like from a racial equity standpoint, for example, there's some research that when gentrification happens, it more negatively affects people of color than white people. From an equity standpoint, you got to pay attention to the 50% of the city, over 50% of the city that's in persistent sort of distress. When you look at the maps in the, that we created, you know, two thirds of the city, there is like no functioning mortgage market. It's he says, if anything, city leaders focus too much on things like gentrification and preserving affordable housing. I think they get distracted by focusing on these five or six places in the city where there is a functioning housing market. And it distracts you from the fact that the housing market is not functioning in well over half of the city. And that's like the problem they need to try and fix. Okay, so I got the message. Most of Cleveland is in bad shape and the city's biggest problem is that too many people have too little money, not too much. But I still had some reservations about what Jason Segedy and Michael Norton were saying. Just because people are getting priced out of neighborhoods doesn't happen as often here as in, say, San Francisco or Portland. Does that really mean it's not worth thinking about at all? I posed this exact question to another Jason, Jason Powers. At the time I talked to him, he was in the community development department at the city of Cleveland. He has since moved on to work for a nonprofit called Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. What Jason Powers told me is that, like Jason Segedy and Michael Norton, he believes gentrification is a trendy topic that we're kidding ourselves to worry about in Cleveland. In bigger, higher-cost cities like New York, yeah, if you have to move out of your neighborhood, that might mean that you'll end up miles away, across town, or even in another state. But... In Cleveland, and and I don't want to belittle this occurrence because it... I'm privileged, it hasn't happened to me, but displacement on an economic lens, physical, like you can't afford here, it can move you five blocks. You can find a single family house to rent three blocks away or four blocks away and still be within the same neighborhood, the same school district, of course, the same commute to work, et cetera. Another leader who works for the city planning department pointed something else out, that a lot of the large scale new development here, the new condos and apartments, they're happening on land that used to be vacant an old battery factory, for example, land that used to be part of railroad right-of-ways. Basically, there's plenty of room for everyone, new and old, he told me. So you may have noticed that all the people we've heard from so far in this episode are middle class or above white guys, including yours truly. We're gonna change that up in a minute. But before I move on, let me say that the 2020 census data supports what these guys are saying, and that for most demographics, large-scale displacement does not seem to be happening yet, even in my neighborhood. Between 2010 and 2020, the percentage of white people in my census tract did rise slightly to 61% from 59%. But people of Latino or Hispanic ethnicity stayed exactly the same, 23%. And the percentage of Asian and multiracial people actually grew, there was only one group that did decline. The black population fell to 14% from 25%. You know how I said in my question to Michael Norton a minute ago that there's evidence that when gentrification happens, it affects non-white people and especially black people most? That's been well documented over the years. There's a long line of research on just 
racial stratification, racial inequality, and where people end up. Jacqueline Wong is a professor of sociology at Stanford University. She's done a lot of research on gentrification, especially what happens to people once they leave a gentrifying neighborhood. These neighborhoods that were once affordable, the ones that gentrify become unaffordable. So that does shrink the options for people to live. Also, these options are not good options. You know, school quality is is different. Crime rates are different. I mean, these are not neighborhoods that any the city is investing in um, for the people. And so, yeah, you're you're basically subjugating everyone into like these these neighborhoods. So, I mean, there's still it's just reconcentrating poverty um, and giving more space for for wealthier people. In one study she did in Philadelphia, she found that when poor people moved out of historically black gentrifying neighborhoods, they tended to go to areas that were poorer than where they were coming from. There's housing discrimination throughout the entire process on the housing market when it is like the interaction of uh, an individual to a realtor, to a, a landlord, in, reaching out to landlords to rent from them in access to credit um, and then subsequently affecting what kinds of mortgages and loan products they can get, access to credit in subsequently affecting landlords who screen people for credit scores um, and what kind of a part or who they're who they're willing to rent to. But one of the things I've been learning from working on this podcast is that Black people and people of color are not always victims in gentrification. One of the good things about how slowly displacement seems to be happening so far in Cleveland is that there's a chance to plan ahead and proactively provide opportunities for people to buy houses who might not otherwise have a chance to do that here. Those houses can then become a way for wealth building for people who've traditionally been discriminated against in the ways that Jacqueline Wong spoke about. How you doing? Hey, bud. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. How you doing? I'm good. You doing a little lawn? lawn yeah, I'm, I'm trying to weed my garden, man. Trying to get the weeds out. Eugene Miles lives across the street from me. He runs his own moving company, and his wife runs a daycare. We've become friendly over the years, trading gardening tips, keeping up to date on each other's kids, and in his case, grandkids. I catch him as he's pushing a fertilizer spreader across his small patch of front lawn. And then I'm going to get some spray. Yeah. And I'm going to spray it on top of here. Got it. Get rid of all of those little three-leaf yeah. clover. He moved to the neighborhood about eight years ago, about the same time Ted bought our house, before I was in the picture, and before prices started rising really fast. How do you feel about the way things are, are going? Do you think things have changed a lot since you moved in? Or? Yeah, things have changed a lot. It's upcoming. It's a great place to be at a great time. You know, it's diverse. You see all type of creed colors, you know, just enjoying themselves. A lot of bike riding, a lot of dog walking, a lot of peace, and a lot of joy. Eugene moved from the city's east side, which is mostly black, and largely because of the discriminatory practices that Jacqueline Wong described, also mostly low income and losing population an area that Jason Segedy would describe as experiencing displacement by decline. And we were at a house for 116.9, locked in for 30 years. $116,900 on a 30-year mortgage. It was a colonial right next door to me, exactly just like my house, selling for $40,000. I wasn't going to continue paying 
$900 a month. You know what I'm saying? When the house next door to me is just $40,000. He got some help from a nonprofit called CHN Housing Partners. They got Eugene and his wife out of that mortgage and into the house he lives in now through their rent-to-own program. Basically, the way it works is that CHN renovates an old house or builds a new one using federal tax subsidies. Low-income families move in as renters, but instead of the rent going to a landlord, it goes toward building equity in the house. After 15 years, the family can buy the house for the remaining debt on the property. It's an option Eugene says he definitely plans to take when it becomes available to him in another seven years or so. Our value has almost tripled. Another great place to be at a great time. You know what I mean? Yeah, so we ain't planning on going nowhere. I never had nobody in my family to own a home. I'm the first person to ever own a home. We always come up from the projects. So it makes me proud to know that my kids have a backyard and my grandkids have a backyard. That's something accomplished already from a generational thing. So that's why I'm loving this. I would would never think to leave because if you get in a tough situation or whatever, you got something. Uh, You're a homeowner. Then Eugene turns the tables on me. You like the neighborhood? I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I hope it. I hope it continues to be diverse and have all kinds of people living in it. That's what I like about it. Sometimes I worry that as things get so expensive. And you know, it brings, it brings some knuckleheads. You know what I'm saying? When they see, whenever they see money coming into a neighborhood, this is where they come and think where they can come and get over at. But we got to stand together here, you know. What do you think it would look like to stick together in terms of, like, keeping the knuckleheads out or keeping out people who are just trying to, like, profiteer off the neighborhood? I think we need to just get together sometime and just block the street off and just meet and greet each other and talk about what goes on on 76th Street. Because you never know who lives next to you. Right. And I think that is important to everybody, to know your neighbor. Right. That's very important. But in terms of, like, getting together, what does that do to the knuckleheads? <laughs> oh, it lets them know that we ain't playing on 76th Street, that we stick together. We're a community. I was so glad to know that Eugene loves this neighborhood, wants to stay, and feels like he'll be able to stay by standing together block by block. And I was heartened to find out that more rent-to-own houses like Eugene's are on the way, most of them not right here in the hottest part of the neighborhood, but on surrounding streets. We'll hear more about them in the next episode. But I also noted his use of the term knuckleheads to talk about developers and flippers. Even for someone who says he feels good about the way the neighborhood is going and that he's benefiting from the changes, an anxiety seems to creep in, that we're vulnerable to outsiders looking to make a quick buck. A conversation I had with another neighbor, this time my next-door neighbor, followed a similar path. Gratitude about the way things are going now, no feelings of immediate pressure to leave, but laced with uncertainty about the future. You know the sweet potato leaf? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, the sweet potato leaf. That, that one. Siba Balo Biavogi meets me at the West African import store he owns and operates with his wife, Kulu Elizabeth. The store is named after her, Kulu's Marketplace. And it's located in Ohio City, another hot, growing Cleveland neighborhood about a mile from where I live. I chit-chat with Siba and his family from time to time when we see each other in our backyards, 
But I've never gotten a chance to ask him about his path here to Cleveland or to this store. We're from Guinea. Yeah, from the same country. After he shows me some of the items he has on the shelves and in the freezer cases. These are cassava, cassava leaves. Is a one of our popular vegetables in Africa. We sit down to talk near an area of the store that Siba hopes to one day turn into a full-scale bakery. Siba and his wife came to Cleveland in the late 1980s on the advice of a friend. When I came, I was lodging with my friend that brought me into Cleveland. So I was living on the east side. Siba got a job as a machinist for the city of Cleveland. And by 2001, they had saved up enough to buy their own house. They worked with a realtor who showed them the place on West 76th Street where they live now, and they immediately fell in love. And by a couple of years ago, he and Kolu had built up enough capital to chase their dream of opening this market. That capital came through Siba's job with the city, which he still works, by the way, long hours, and a refinance loan they took out on their house. They were able to get that loan thanks to the sweat equity they'd put in. I did a lot of work in that house, even down to the plumbing. And also the general rise in property values. Do you ever worry that's happening too fast, that prices could rise so much that your property taxes could go up too high and you couldn't afford to live here anymore? I I think (laughs) that is a tough and a hard question. For any reason, the bigger reason would be like what we are seeing right now, the development that is going on around there, Let's say, for instance, <laughs> let's say they start building houses on our block. You know, starting from our, uh, that would be 74, 74 block coming towards us. Then we know definitely we're going to be victimized. Because long ago we heard that uh, there was a, a kind of plan laid out for that neighborhood, that eventually the neighborhood, some of us going to be out of there. I heard that. Siba said he even asked around once at City Hall, where he works, if those rumors were true. And he never got a clear answer. So I just, we are just waiting to see what's going to happen. I wonder if Siba's talking about eminent domain, that controversial practice where a government entity can force people to sell their property to build something new for, quote, public use. Public use could be for things like new roadways, parks, even buildings. I try to reassure him I've never heard of any plans like that from City Hall or elsewhere. As in my conversation with Eugene Miles, I'm glad Siba feels mostly secure that he won't have to leave the neighborhood and that he's benefited in some tangible ways from living there, like the fact that he was able to start his own business in part from getting a loan on his house. But I don't like that he harbors any belief that houses on our street could just be knocked down en masse in the future by the city, developers, or anyone. The fact that that's even in his mind, like the knuckleheads in Eugene's mind, to me, that brings up an aspect of this whole discussion of neighborhood change that's much more complex than just the number of people who are or are not moving out of a neighborhood. What are we doing to let the people who are here know that they're valued as much as new construction? that they have some say in what happens in the future. Fortunately, I'm not the only one asking. That's on the next episode of Inside the Bricks 2, My Neighborhood.
Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood is an IdeaStream public media podcast. It's written and reported by me, Justin Glanville, and edited by Mike McIntyre, IdeaStream's executive editor. Sound design and production are by John Nungesser. Thanks also to producer Drew Mazius. Our director of strategic content initiatives is Natalie Pillsbury. Mark Rosenberger is our chief of content. Our music is by local musician Aaron Snorton, with additional music from Ketza, Ben Von Wildenhaus, Holizana Raps, Johnny Ripper, Josh Woodward, and Wineland from the Free Music Archive. Visit us online at ideastream.org slash inside the bricks. There's a lot of ways to connect on the site, by the way. Like you can sign up for a newsletter with extra stories and thoughts that didn't make the podcast. Or take a survey to tell us what you think and let us know about things we're missing. Until next time, 